Well, good evening. Good evening. There it is. There it is. All right. It's good to, uh, good to be with you um, again tonight as we continue this fall in our series called Legacy, looking at the life of Isaac and now primarily focused on the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Well, this last week uh, was one of those, they had one of those days that pops up that it's not really a holiday, it's not something that, that my wife and I celebrate, but it's kind of one of those things that every year when it hits, we go, oh yeah, that was so-and-so on this date. And this, this one happened to be this past Monday on October 15th, I was doing something, I was at work that day, and I looked at the date and I went, oh yeah, it was nine years ago on October 15th that my wife and I got engaged. And I, I remember that, um, and, and pardon me if you've heard this story before, I've told it before, but I only have one engagement story, so I'm going to tell it again, right? So I'm sorry, if I had multiples, I would go to the other one, but I only have one, so we're going to go with that one. Um, if, if any of you are married and you're in that stage of life, like, my wife became like a hawk when it became almost time. Like, she knew that I had talked to the parents. She was pretty sure a ring was purchased, and so she was a hawk looking for it, reading into every single thing, right? Like, when is he going to ask? When is he going to ask? Um, and we had, a, we had a trip. My brother lives up in northern Michigan, and so we were headed up for, for a weekend to visit, um, to visit him. And so in the car on the way up, of course, it was in October, so it was cool outside. So I had a, a jacket on, um, and in one pocket was a box. And I can see her as we're in the car, and she starts texting her friends, right? Like, oh my goodness, I see a box in his pocket. It's, he's going to ask today. He's finally going to ask. And I waited till we were somewhere in Michigan, so we're a few hours into the drive at this point. And I said, hey, check it out. And I stuck my hand into my pocket. And I said, look, the Rubik's Cube is in my pocket. And I had a Rubik's Cube with me, right? If you want to hide a small box, just put a bigger box in the other pocket. And she was like, false alarm. Just kidding. Right? I hate this man. He's never going to ask. You know, and then, um, then it was later that afternoon that, that I asked her. And, and we were engaged for about nine months, and it was a fun period. If you've ever been engaged, you know that, it, that it's a period filled with a lot of joy, a lot of difficulty at times in planning um, a big event, kind of learning how to relate to other families. Um, but as interesting as some of our engagement stories may have been, and the period between getting engaged and being married, I doubt that when we get to heaven and we swap engagement stories, that when Jacob goes, all right, my turn, he's going to top us all. (laughs) Jacob's going to top us all with this old-fashioned love story that is unlike anything else that I've ever read or ever heard of. So if you have your Bibles tonight, would you open them to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 29. Some of the text is printed in the handout for tonight, but unfortunately it's around 30, 31 verses for tonight, so it's not able to to all fit in there. So if you're able to to open it either, if you have a Bible with you or on an app, um, I'd encourage you to do that. Last week we looked as as Jacob was sent out from home. Remember, he has deceived his brother from both his birthright and then deceived his father into giving him the blessing. His brother Esau wanted him dead, so he was sent away to go find himself a wife from where his mother Rebekah is from. And on his journey last week, we, we saw he had journeyed for a day. And last week, we looked at this amazing story in chapter 28 where, where he, he sleeps and God comes down and God makes this covenant with him, restores the covenant that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, he now makes with Jacob. That Jacob, you will come back to this land. You will have offspring and I will bless you. I will go with 
you. And Jacob vows at the end of chapter 28 to follow God as God has revealed himself to him. Well, chapter 29 says, verse 1, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people east. Sometimes the Bible takes one verse, and in one verse is described hundreds of miles, likely weeks if not months of travel. He didn't just hop on the airplane and fly a couple hundred miles to the northeast into the Fertile Crescent of that time. He, he likely was traveling by himself. It was a long and arduous journey to go all the way up to the land of his mom, hundreds of miles away, out of the promised land that God had promised, not just to Abraham and Isaac, but also promised to him as well. And he's finally entered into the lands of the people of the east, the land of his mother, Rebekah. Verse 2, as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on that well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and then put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well." And so Jacob shows up, he sees this well, and we're given all these details about the well. You'll see in a moment why, why we're given so many details. But just know this, that it's a well that's not just like a normal one, but it's actually covered with a large rock. And how they're describing it, it's not something that anyone would just go to whenever they needed and lower their bucket down and pull water out. But it was specifically meant for the shepherds. But one shepherd couldn't do it himself. And so they would gather together and three flocks were there, multiple shepherds were there. And as multiple shepherds would gather together in unison, they would then push and pull on this large stone to move it out of the way to then open up the well so that they could pull water out. And then when they were done, they would push this large stone and cover it again. Verse 4, Jacob comes and he says to them, my brothers, where do you come from? There were no like road signs saying what country you're in, what state you're in, what province you're in. They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Laban is his uncle. It's his mother, Rebekah's brother. They said, we know him. He said to them, well, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep to go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well when the water, when, and then we water the sheep. And so he, he encourages them to do it. And they're like, we're going to wait till everyone has arrived. But notice that the moment that Jacob arrives, who shows up off in the distance but Rachel? And the story has many similarities to just a few chapters earlier in chapter 24, when Abraham sent his servant off to the land of Haran to find a wife for his son Isaac. And this Abraham's servant shows up and he goes to the well. And as he arrives to the well, the very moment in the distance comes Rebekah. Years later, Jacob shows up to a similar place, also to a well, and just happens at the same time that Rachel comes Towards him. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. 
Two things to highlight in verse 10. Notice how Jacob's relationship through his family is tied to Rachel and to Laban. It's it's mentioned three separate times. To, To Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother. The sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. To Laban, his mother's brother. He wants you to make sure, hey, remember this is Laban. This is his uncle. This is family. This is who he's been looking for in verse 10. But not only that. But this stone is so big, the shepherds are sitting back and they probably look at Jacob and they're like, oh, what's this guy trying to do? Here comes the cute girl. He's trying to impress her, right? Like that's what men do. They have to show like some show of strength and dominance to impress the woman. And the shepherds are probably giggling. They're nudging each other like, what is this? This guy just shows up out of nowhere. He think, and then like, what, what, oh, oh. It's Jacob has this audacity and, and somehow God gives him strength in something that they've probably never seen before. Single-handedly pushes the stone away and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. When, when Jacob, um, excuse me, when, when Isaac's, uh, sorry, when Abraham's servant went to find Rebekah, it was Rebekah who went and drew water to water Abraham's flocks. Here it's reversed. That Jacob pulls it, and now Jacob goes, and Jacob pulls the water, and Jacob is watering the flocks for Laban. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. It seems kind of innocent enough, but scholars do point out Jacob starts giving Rachel the customary welcome greeting kiss that you would greet a family member with. He starts crying, and then he announces who he is, right? He's kind of an audacious, bold man at this point, right? He goes up, this woman has no idea who he is, and he starts giving her a greeting custom kiss, not how you would greet a stranger, but how you would greet a family member. And then he starts weeping and telling her, Upon hearing who he is, she ran and told her father, just as when Rebekah met Abraham's servant, she ran and told her father and her brother what was happening. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Laban's response was the same here as is recorded in chapter 24 when Laban hears about this man and he runs to him as well. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh, highlighting this, this tie that he has to him and he stayed with him a month. It's interesting, there may also be ulterior motives for Laban to run out so quickly. If you remember in chapter 24, when Abraham's servant showed up, he came loaded with camels full of wealth that he gave to Laban's father. And Laban's like, wait, who's back? Oh, this could be good. The lottery you think is big because it's over a billion. Laban's like, I don't even have to get a ticket. Here it is. And he runs out and he sees Jacob all by himself. No wealth, nothing with him. Just Jacob's by himself. But he still gives him this customary family greeting and he welcomes him into his home. Well, this story, as I've said, if you could describe, if I would use one word to describe Genesis 29, it would be odd. It's an odd story all the way around, and we're going to see as it continues to become more odd. But, but tonight, we're going to look at three lessons from this odd story in Genesis 29. Three lessons. And the first is this that we see, I think, so clearly here, just here as well as throughout the whole story, is that God directs our steps. God directs our steps. 
There's too many things that happen in chapter 29 that also happened in chapter 24 that we could just write off as, oh, well, what a lucky guy. What a coincidence that that happened to be that way. Well, we may look at it and we think, what a coincidence, what a lucky thing. We really should step back and see what a God thing that God directed Jacob's steps, that God was providentially directing this to happen just as he wanted. It's in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, that that we read this. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God directs not just Jacob's steps, but God directs the steps of those who love and who follow after him. And so as we think about God being the God who's providential, who's sovereign over us, providential means God works everything out for the good of his people. Sovereign means God's rules over all things, including our lives. How do we know how to walk in God's steps? How do we know if we're walking in the steps that God would have for us? Another way that we could phrase this question is how do we know what God's will is for our lives? How do we know what God's will is for our lives? I remember a long time ago when I was in high school, I walked into uh, to a room and one of my friends was like, he was, he was seriously opening his Bible and he had a strong concordance. This was before you could just Google everything back in the day. And he was like looking things up. I was like, man, what are you looking? He's like, I'm trying to find God's will for my life. <laughs> like if you just read hard enough, you knew where you were supposed to go to college. I've been... Um, And thinking about this question, how do we know God's will for our life? I've been extremely helped um, by a book by by Pastor Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. Just Do Something. It's a Moody published book. It's about 10 years old now, I think. And it's a small, it's a simple book. But he has so many practical things in there for, for how do we think about this concept of God's will and how do we practically live that out for us. For me, as, as I picked up and, and looked through the book again this week, two things that, that he mentions in there that, that I think help us understand knowing God's will are so helpful. The first is this, that, that God's will has more to do with who you are than where you are. God's will for your life has more to do with who you are than where you are. It has to do more with your character than your circumstances. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? He didn't list your career choice. He didn't list where you need to move, who you're going to marry, how many kids you should have. He didn't list all these things that we so often think of when we think about what's God's will for my life. He thinks about our personal character and our personal holiness. Over and over throughout scripture, when it comes to God's will, God's desire, God's plan for us, it's focused on the kind of people we are. And the character that we have is a reflection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God's will is about who we are, not where we are. The second thing which he, he shares Kevin DeYoung in this book over and over again, I love, is this. God's will isn't something he's going to tell you in advance. God's will is not something that he's going to tell you in advance. Praying for God's will isn't like he's going to finally relent and be like, all right, here's the 10-year plan for your life. Would you stop asking? He's not going to just tell us this is exactly when it's going to go and this is, no, because if God told us that, we wouldn't need to trust him anymore. God's not going to tell us our future. He's going to guide us day by day. And what we need to understand when we think of God's will is we don't need to understand his plan fully to obey him today. 
one of the, the interesting things about being married, if, if you're married, you've probably experienced this um, in your life, is, is there are certain things in your relationship that one of you just starts to do because God's gifted you at it, and the other one, eventually, they just kind of stop asking questions and just trust that you have it taken care of, right? Whether that be with the finances or whether that be with kind of different other things in your life. Um, one of the interesting things that, that this has played out for, for my wife, Kristen, and I is I'm a great planner. I love to plan things, um, and I grew up traveling. I grew up out west, and my parents were school teachers, so we've done a lot of road trips and traveling. So one of the things that I love to do is I love to plan whenever we take a trip somewhere. I plan it literally to the day. I pull up on my phone, I have files of this is where we're going to go, this is what we should see, this is what we should do. Um, my wife and I, in just a little over a week, we're going to take a few days, just get out of Chicago, go out to some nature, do some hiking, um, and, and enjoy God's creation. She was telling me how Friday, one of her coworkers said, oh, where are you going on vacation a little over a week? And she was, I don't remember. And her coworker was like, what do you mean you don't remember? What are you going to do on vacation? And my wife was like, I think we're going to go hiking. I don't know, though. I, I, my husband planned it. I trust him. Right? Why is it not a big deal for her that she doesn't know the day-by-day agenda of the future of our vacation? Why? Because she trusts the person who's planned it. Friends, we don't need to know exactly the day-by-day agenda that God has planned for us next week, next year, or in 10 years, because we know the one who plans it, and we should trust him. We should trust that God has a plan, and that can be enough for us to obey him today. We should trust in his character. So what do we do if we want God to direct our steps? We live with everything we have to seek Christian maturity. We pray. We seek to make wise decisions. We pray about things. We, we seek input from God's word, from the believers around us. And we focus not on the circumstances of our life, but on building godly character. And as we do that, God will direct our steps just as he was directing the steps of Jacob. Verse 15, after Jacob's gotten settled, it says he stayed with Laban and his family for a month. After a month, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? What he's saying is you're not my slave. You're not my slave. What, what, what should you do? So he asked, tell me, what shall your wages be? So kind of, hey, enter and negotiate for me. It seems like a generous offer, but as we're going to see, Laban probably has ulterior motives for coming across so generous to Jacob. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So suddenly, for the first time, we see that while he's already met Rachel, there's actually two daughters that Laban has. There's Leah as well as Rachel. And it's immediate contrast in verse 16. Leah was the older, Rachel was the younger. And that should be like in our minds right away, we should go, uh-oh. Right? Because there's been a contrast throughout the story of Jacob and Esau, of the older and the younger, and the conflict that that has caused in their life. And as soon as we see older, younger, our minds should be trained to see that in Genesis and go, uh-oh, that means something's coming. That means something is going to happen between these. The next verse, verse 17, says that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Scholars have have studied this phrase of Leah's eyes being weak, and they've come to this consensus on its meaning. They're not sure. (laughs) I know, you were hoping for something brilliant, but that's the truth. 
That's the truth. They're like, we, they aren't entirely sure. Some translations you'll see will think that this actually could be saying a positive thing. Some, some translations would say that they were gentle or they were soft. Um, most likely the reason that the ESV translates it this way and what most scholars seem to think is just as older and younger is this contrast that they're most likely contrasting their physical appearance as well. And so calling Leah saying that she has weak eyes is probably a negative connotation towards her because the description of Rachel is certainly anything but negative. It said that she's beautiful in form and actually the Hebrew repeats it twice. She's beautiful in form and she's beautiful in appearance. You've heard of a double negative. This is a double positive. She's beautiful in form and she's beautiful in appearance. And because of her beauty, we see verse 18, very simply, Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved her. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger, uh-oh, we should, we should think to be popping up in our heads, younger, why does he say younger? For your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, this seven-year offer seems to be very generous, it is a price that he's not trying to negotiate, be like, oh, let me see how low I can go, and maybe me and Laban can meet somewhere in the middle. We don't know what Laban's thinking, but he wasn't thinking seven. Jacob comes out with seven, and Laban's like, whoa, seven, all right, because Jacob doesn't have riches to pay for this, as was custom in their day, so he has to work to earn his wages. Verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Seven years accompanied in one verse. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. The second thing that we see, this, the second lesson in this odd story, is that God delivers his people. God delivers his people because as we entered into this passage in verse 1, Jacob is alone in the desert. He has no hope for the future. He has no prospect of returning to the land. God's, God's given him the promise of land. Jacob's leaving it. He's given him the prospect of the promise of offspring. Jacob doesn't know any women in the world. He's alone in the desert. And he's given him the promise of blessing. Jacob enters into Laban's household with literally nothing but the clothes on his back. And God shows up, directs his steps, and then delivers him so that suddenly all these promises that God made to him that seemed outrageous are now coming into the light of reality. God delivered Jacob from hopeless circumstances and provided for him a future and a hope. See, God actually does the same thing for us who are his children. He sees us in our hopelessness without any claim to the promises of God, but he's the one who delivers us and saves us and transfers us to the place that we can receive those. Colossians chapter 1 says this, that, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just as Jacob needed God's intervention to deliver him to a place where he had a hope and a future, each and every one of us find ourselves in a hopeless state, without future, without hope of achieving the promises of God on our own, if God doesn't show up and do something. God shows up for Jacob, and my friends, God will show up for us when we seek him. God will deliver us when we seek him. He will deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
So God is doing something great in this passage, and he's delivering, he's offering Jacob a future and a hope, and he offers each of us the same thing. Verse 21. Story continues. Then Jacob said to Laban, the seven years have come and gone in verse 20. He said to Laban, give me my wife. All right, he's not too, he's, he's not too patient after all, right? Seven years have come and gone. This, this screams impatient. This screams frustration, right? Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. You get the sense here that Laban wasn't going to bring it up, right? He was hoping Jacob's counting was wrong. And he was like, oh, I hope he thinks he's on year six, not that seven has come and gone, right? He's not going to say anything. But Jacob knows, Jacob's counted, and he said, let me consummate my marriage that I've been waiting engaged for seven years for this woman who I love. Laban doesn't respond to him verbally, but goes about and, and starts what is known as the, the wedding feast, which was the custom of the day. So verse 22, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. A feast that we know from history would have included lots of food and wine and drink. And so they feast together, all the people, including Jacob, have this long feast. Verse 23, but in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And so the women, especially the, the bride, would have been heavily veiled. So you wouldn't have been able to see hardly anything but her eyes, including even at night, including when they went to consummate their marriage. And Jacob, not only that, but was likely had a little too much to drink, was probably dark at this point. And so Jacob goes in and he finds himself awake the next morning. But notice what's happened. What was Jacob's name come from? It's one who grabs the heel Jacob has been the one who all along for the last several chapters has been the deceiver, the trickster. What's happened to him? The deceiver's been deceived. The trickster just got tricked. Sometimes things have to happen to us that we do to others before we realize the full impact of our own actions. Verse 25, <laughs> the text is so straightforward. And in the morning, behold, that's like his way of saying, whoa. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? What have you done? Interesting, this is the exact same question that Pharaoh and Abimelech asked Abraham when he passed off Sarah to be his sister. They asked him, what have you done to me? It's the exact same question that Abimelech asks Isaac when Isaac does the same thing and passes off his wife to be his sister. What have you done to me? Now Jacob is asking Laban, who he just got tricked into marrying the older sister Leah, what have you done to me? He cries out in verse 25, did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Verse 26, Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now this should sting Jacob because he's the younger and he stole everything in his family from the firstborn. What goes around seems sometimes to come around. Verse 27, complete the week of this one, the celebration. And after the week-long festival of marriage, we will give you the other also in return for serving me seven more years. 
See, Laban accomplishes two things with this task. First, he ensures that both of his daughters get married, which is a very important thing in their time and their custom. Not only that, he got seven more years of work out of Jacob. He just negotiated himself into seven more years of labor for a positive outcome that he wanted anyways. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed the marriage week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And so after the week, he has another, another marriage. He's like, you don't have any other more siblings, do you, Rachel? There's no one else I should be careful of tonight, right? It's just you, right? There's not another one hiding somewhere. No, it's just, all right, just Leah, just Rachel. Not going to be tricked this time. Right after a week, he gets married to Rachel, verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. That last verse starts to set up this tension for what we're going to start to explore next week. That he loved Rachel more than Leah. We've seen favoritism in his family, right? Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. We're going to see the tension and ultimately the pain that this causes both short term as well for years to come in Jacob's life. The, the end of this odd story, I think the third lesson that we can learn is this. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. Jacob needed a little taste of his own medicine, right? Jacob, the deceiver, needed to feel the weight of what he'd done to others on himself. God's providence, his, his orchestrating all events to his good, and for his glory is seen throughout this passage. It doesn't mean that God caused these things to happen in an evil way. God's hands weren't on it. But what it means is that God uses even evil things, as we sung about, to accomplish his purpose. And this is seen throughout the Bible and especially in the book of Genesis. We, we sang in one of the, the last songs this refrain that, that Joseph actually says in Genesis chapter 50 when he talks to his brothers and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In God's providence, he can take even the evil intentions of the human heart, the wicked intentions of mankind, and turn it into God's ultimate good. The thing is about God's discipline for those he loves that I've encountered in my life is this. This fact remains true almost always. Discipline is always painful. That's why it's called discipline. If it wasn't discipline, it wouldn't be painful. It would just be fun, right? But God's discipline is nearly always painful in our lives. And oftentimes, we don't understand discipline in the moment that we're experiencing it. Right? We don't understand why the discipline is coming our way. I was thinking back um, to, to one of the things that my high school basketball coach made us do when I played basketball in high school. And he would make us shoot free throws. And if we missed a free throw, we had to run wind sprints up and down the gym, up and down the gym, so we could hardly breathe anymore. Then he goes, get back on the line and shoot more free throws. I'm like, who is this guy? Is he trying to kill us? He has no love, no compassion in his heart. What was he trying to do? He was trying to discipline us in a way that in the game, when we were tired and had to shoot a big free throw, that we would be able to focus, we'd be able to work through. But in the moment, we're like, I hate this guy, right? Every, I think every practice, we'd just be grumbling off the sideline, and then like an hour later, after we've got cooled down, we're like, we love coach, he's great. <laughs> I think every high school coach, right, it's a balance of love and hate relationship with them. If, if they're disciplining you, because we don't understand discipline in the moment, it feels 
painful. Max Lucado has, has written this phrase. He said, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. And so God will discipline us to form us and to mold us and to shape us like Jesus. So if you're God's child today, God's discipline is not an optional thing in your life. It will come. It will come regularly. And so the question is, how do we respond to God's discipline? How do we respond to God's discipline? Throughout Scripture, there's kind of two categories of people when it comes to God's discipline and our response to it. The book of Proverbs clearly lines them. You have the wise person and you have the fool. When it comes to responding to discipline, especially discipline from God, you either are wise or you are a foolish person. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, describing the foolish person, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise God's discipline in their lives. They despise the wisdom and instruction that could come from God. But on the contrary, Proverbs chapter 3 tells us this. It says, the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Discipline is sure to come our way. Verse 17, sorry, chapter 17 of Proverbs says, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And so when God disciplines us, is our response in our lives to God's discipline one of the wise person or the fool? Do we despise, push back, refuse to learn from God's discipline, or do we humbly listen and admit our wrong and learn from what God is trying to do in our lives? Listen, we all remember from when we were kids, and if you're a parent, you remember it from your own kids. If you discipline your kid and they don't get it, what do you keep doing? Disciplining them for the same thing they keep messing up over and over. Why do we think that in our lives sometimes God keeps disciplining us over and over and over again? It's because we keep doing the same things over and over and over again. Because we're being foolish and we're not responding to the discipline in his life. We need to be wise. And when, we, when God disciplines us, when God enters hardship into our life, to not push back, to not rebel against him, not become bitter, but to think, what is God trying to teach me through this? It's a question you should ask yourself often in difficult, in any hard circumstance. What is God trying to teach me through this? It's a question we should be asking as a church in this time where we've been without a senior leader now for over two years. What is God teaching us together? What is God teaching us? Because we would be foolish if we're like, oh, it's just, it just happens to be like this. God's not, no, God is always doing something in our midst. What is God trying to teach us? Friends, for some of us tonight, we've encountered pain. We've encountered difficulty. God's trying to get our attention in our lives. Let's respond with wisdom. Let's be careful in our ways. Let's listen to what God is doing in our lives. Let's learn from the discipline that he has. He directs our steps. He delivers his people and he disciplines those he loves. God, we thank you that you love us the way we are, but you don't want us to stay that way. God, you're shaping, you're molding your people to become more like Jesus. God, for any of us tonight who are pushing against the discipline in our lives, God, who are responding foolishly to the work you're doing, God, may our hearts be softened to wisdom. 
God, may we be open to your leading, open to your direction in our lives. God, we thank you as we see so clearly in the life of Jacob that you're a faithful God. You're a God who is providentially guiding the steps of each of our lives, of our church, and we thank you that we can trust you even in the difficult times. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.